0: Welcome back guys to another episode of the Ultimate Podcast here as always with my co-host Mitch Kurtz and a very special guest today. Um, There are a myriad of ways we could introduce but I will just go with Professor Kylie O'Brien and welcome Kylie. We're really excited to have you on our show today. Yeah,
1: pleasure to be here.
0: Um, Thank you. Now, for anyone out there who's enjoying these AltMed podcasts, um, as always, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening. So if that's YouTube, Spotify, whatever channel, um, we really appreciate all the support and we hope you guys are getting something out of it. So Kylie, where to begin? You've been in the space of complementary medicines, medicinal cannabis for quite some time now. Um really is our pleasure to have you on today. So perhaps we might start with just your background and how you fell into this space.
1: Yeah, well, my background is as a Chinese medicine doctor for the last, I guess, 20 odd years. Before that, I was an optometrist, something completely different. Um, When I was working at the National Institute of Integrated Medicine, probably back in around 2017, a colleague of mine Sort of came to me and he said look you know um, medicinal cannabis is now legalized um, doctors can prescribe it legally but there's not much in terms of education going on can you help out and by the way um, doctors have a pathway to become authorized prescribers through the TGA's authorized prescriber scheme but um, it's a two-step process and no one's doing that the first step of that so um, I guess Under that sort of uh, role as Director of of Education at Nim at the time, I I did a couple of things. So I set up a two-day course. It was a training course for medical practitioners. We had around 55 um, come through that course. It received RACGP approval at the time as well. So it was the first one we ran in Melbourne, and then we ran another one in Sydney the same year. But at the same time, um, I happened to be on the NIM ethics committee at the time. Uh, and part of the authorised prescriber process um, is so basically to become an authorised prescriber, you have to be uh, approved by an, either an ethics committee or a special, specialist college. But the problem at the time was that no specialist colleges were doing such approvals and no ethics committees were either. So I set up the, um, the policy and procedures through the National Institute of Integrative Medicine, uh, by which doctors could then apply to the NIM ethics committee. Now, if they're approved at the ethics committee level, then they apply to the TGA, appending that um, ethics committee approval letter. The TGA makes the final um, decision on whether a doctor is approved as an authorised prescriber of cannabis. So that's really how I sort of got involved in it, um, simply because there was a need.
0: That's fascinating to me. I mean, I've always had a bent towards just looking at the evolving landscape of regulation in this space. But I am interested in, um, given your sort of origins in Chinese medicine and um, plant medicine generally, um, just interested in whether or not, that authorized prescriber scheme that was new for medicinal cannabis wasn't it was it was have you ever sort of experienced anything like that or do you feel that from a regulatory standpoint medicinal cannabis from day one has always been treated under different rules to your ordinary plant medicines yeah
1: look i guess there's two sort of thoughts around that so the reason that this authorized prescriber scheme and the special access scheme Um, come into play is that medicinal cannabis is considered an unauthorized good or an unauthorized medicine under the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration. So it wasn't a scheme, uh, in my understanding, specifically set up for medicinal cannabis. It's just that because it's an unauthorized medicine, it falls under that pathway, if you like. It's interesting because I am a Chinese medicine uh, practitioner. So um, I understand herbal medicine reasonably well. I used to teach herbal medicine. Um, And I guess I see medicinal cannabis as another plant, but in Australia, certainly it's treated as a drug. So um, cannabidiol, for example, is a schedule four prescription only medicine. Um, If um, a medicine contains THC in general, certainly more than 2% of the cannabinoids THC, or if, um, you know, a medicine is CBD predominant, but it's got less than 98% of those, the total cannabinoids of CBD, it becomes a Schedule 8 drug. That's a controlled drug. Um, and then, um, you know, so again, that restricts access. So it restricts access to only doctors and some nurse practitioners, depending on the state. So... Um, yeah it's it's difficult because you know for me it's a herbal medicine it's probably one of the reasons why doctors are perhaps reticent to prescribe it because it's not the same as a drug in a packet it is a, a plant medicine and it needs to be treated as such mm. so i guess there's some of my thoughts on on that
0: well no it's because it, i see that you know obviously the tga has um a, you know a role to play in the the regulation of complementary medicines but you're absolutely right. You know, in, in saying that because it is unapproved, it gets treated under these different rules. So there's the authorized prescriber pathway, which you played a, a lead role in, in sort of being one of the architects of, and then the, the special access scheme is, is another one. But in a nutshell, and I might be opening up a can of worms here, but how is plant medicine ordinarily treated in Australia or regulated?
1: yeah so um anything in a bottle proprietary medicines as in complementary medicines whether it's a herbal medicine or vitamins and those sorts of supplements um are controlled under the tga Um, so we have really good quality control mechanisms in australia for for complementary medicines. so i think the tga does a a fantastic job on that and there's a system of listing or registering um, complementary medicines and there's an intermediate one between that which i think is called assessed, listed, so basically um, it comes down to what therapeutic claims you want to make about a, a complementary medicine. So if you want to make a high level therapeutic claim, then you have to have um, basically um, randomized controlled trial data um, showing safety um, and efficacy. Um, if you want to make a low level claim, um, like something just improves general well-being or something like that, um, then that's, that's a listed medicine. Um, but you still need to show safety quality and, and the fact that it works as well. Mm. So we, we do have a, a good system set up around complementary medicines. But um, medicinal cannabis and, and CBD um, in particular don't fall under the, the umbrella of complementary medicines. They really are treated as drugs.
0: Well, you think, um,
2: mm, the, that you the other part of the, that some people have suggested I've spoken to around the idea that maybe some of the other compounds within cannabis, uh, say terpenes, flavonoids, this type of thing, might be a good candidate for a complementary medicine. Do you have any thoughts surrounding that?
1: Um, Yes, I do. I I think that, um, you know, perhaps they would be ideal in terms of being regulated as as complementary medicines. And again, as I said, you... um, you know, depending on the level of claim that you want to make about, um, let's say, a terpene product, for example, then you would need to um, meet the requirements of the TGA. If you're going to make a high-level claim, then you'd have to have, you know, the, the scientific data yes. necessary. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, I think that there there is, you know, a possibility. And look, um, a year ago, um, on behalf of a group of um Different um, players in the cannabis industry, I actually did put together um, an application to the TGA scheduling committee to remove cannabidiol completely from the schedules of the SUSMP, that's our drugs and poison standard. Mm. Um, And the TGA put their own um, application up a couple of weeks afterwards um, to um, basically. Uh, down-schedule cannabidiol um, with certain um, rules around that to Schedule 3, which is a pharmacy-only medicine, Uh, and, you know, there was a public consultation, et cetera, et cetera. At the end of the day, though, the TGA's submission to their own scheduling committee was the one that was passed. Um, Mm. The problem at the moment, though, of course, is that... um, You know, the the companies uh, that have products in the market in Australia don't have their scientific evidence yet to get um, their products onto Schedule 3. So I think there was a lot of media sort of um, hoo-ha at the time. um, People were sort of ringing up thinking they could suddenly go into their local chemist and and get cannabidiol, but um, it's not the case.
0: Yeah, a lot of irresponsible media reporting, I, I felt, but perhaps it was, I mean, we are, and even just jumping right into this conversation, it is a... A bit of a technically dense area, and sort of not for the faint-hearted. So, wow. I suppose perhaps you know the journalist didn't appreciate the nuance around the situation. But I suppose, in summary, for anyone who is interested, um, a number of uh, cannabis manufacturers uh, or manufacturers of medicinal cannabis are in the process of conducting trials um, to be able to support um, having enough evidence to be listed on the ARTG and. Um, and have a a schedule three medicine available over the counter, but we are still some time away um, from that. And so for the time being, it remains um, at a minimum schedule four, which is prescription only medicine. Um, But I am interested in when you said before that, uh, that you made a separate application to the TGA Mm -hmm. to see CBD um, removed from the schedules entirely. Was that, what would need to happen potentially in order to have it listed as a as a complementary medicine? Or... Yeah, it would.
1: Yep, yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah. Um. And so, so complementary medicines don't fit within any of the existing SUSMP at all. Is that?
1: No. They're, no. They're, they're, they're you know they're most if anything is on the schedules. You know, is is a drug basically, yeah. and the schedules just give you different levels of access. So. You know, schedule four is prescription only, so you've got to have a prescription for it. Schedule three is a lower one. You can go into a pharmacy and, and ask the pharmacist. Schedule eight is, is a higher level of restriction. That's a controlled drug, like opioids, that sort of thing.
2: Hmm. I've all- heard people, people suggesting that there should be an entirely separate kind of system or infrastructure built to deal with cannabis entirely. Do you feel that that is appropriate, or do you think that we should be making do with the Existing um, infrastructure that we're talking I about. I
1: think if you have a separate, I mean, there's flaws and against, I guess, but if you have a separate sort of um, setup, you, you're not really mainstreaming this as another, you know, sort of therapeutic option. You're making it a special case and you're building a whole sort of mm. regulatory industry, if you like, um, around something that I really sort of think should be mainstreamed.
2: That's a fair point. I appreciate that. Mm. And um, you're actually, you've established an international online platform recently, is that? Is that yeah,
1: yeah, so look, under um, Relief Group, I have set up the International College of Cannabinoid Medicine. And it uh, is an online education platform for healthcare practitioners. Um, it uh, has around 40 30-minute videos and growing. So we're adding two, three new videos each month. Each is focused on a particular um, uh, clinical area, if you like. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that we're going to be building up a, uh, a very big video bank uh, in different clinical areas. Uh, each of the videos has got a 30-minute, uh, sorry, not 30-minute quiz, so, uh, <laughs> a 10-question quiz. You wouldn't want to be doing a quiz for 30 minutes. but. No a 10-question quiz at the end. And once you've done that, um, then it generates your certificate of completion for CPD, continuing professional development purposes. So we're about to launch that. We have some amazing speakers from all over the globe, really. So I've got almost 20 different speakers from five or six different countries around the world. And as I said, that um, group of um, doctors, researchers, academics is growing so we're quite excited about, um, you know, this new platform that, um, as I said, we're going to be launching in a few weeks' time.
0: And okay. might that um, expand into other areas of plant medicine? I know we're, it comes up on, uh, on this podcast from time to time, but we, we have a real interest in observing some of the MAPS trials that are going on into psilocybin research. Is that uh, an area? No,
1: I think we're going to leave that to the experts in that area. Not enough to sort of become an expert in this one fascinating plant. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, we're not going to be branching into other areas. We certainly uh, are interested. We, you know, we've got uh, other organisations that I think do the, the greater field of nutritional medicine and environmental medicine really well, like ACNAM, the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine. I have some fabulous online um, courses for nutritional medicine sort of more broadly. So I do see medicinal cannabis as part of a treatment in a holistic way. So you need to address all sorts of, um, you know, health concerns from all sorts of angles. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's necessarily a magic bullet. I think you've got to look at health holistically. And so you need to understand those other factors like nutrition and diet and exercise and stress reduction and getting enough sunshine and vitamin d all those sorts of things that that help make you healthy
2: absolutely and uh, i guess with the educational platform and some writing and speaking you know uh yeah no stranger to education you were recently speaking at maybe a less medical event would you like to tell us just a little bit about that
1: Yeah, I went up and spoke at the Nimbin Mardi Gras festival a couple of weekends ago. Nimbin, which was amazing. Yeah, it (laughs) um, was. And it was a well-attended event. Um, I think it had a ring of uh, police around it, (laughs) um, sort of testing people uh, on the way in and out of it. But. Look, it was a uh, it was a, a great festival. It had a lot of really good um, uh, speakers talking at it. So in the town hall, they had a full program of people talking about you know med- uh, doctors, um, people like myself, uh, legal eagles, an ex or retired judge was there as well. So um, all talking about different aspects of of, of cannabis.
2: Yeah, fantastic, and just like honing in maybe on that part you're talking about the police waiting out the front yeah. and uh for you to come in and out. Any any thoughts on the kind of current driving laws that are in Australia at the moment? Yeah
1: I think that's really problematic because um any amount of THC tetrahydrocannaminol um, in your um, system if you're caught with it in your system and you're driving then you have committed an offence under all our driving laws uh, sorry all our state's driving laws so that's any state or territory in Australia. and that's regardless of whether you have a prescription for it or not and it's regardless of whether you're demonstrably impaired or not. Mm. So it is a real problem because I think there's other drugs that people can get on prescription that, that would impair them. Um, but that's not illegal for them to be driving with those in their system. And yet it is for any amount of THC in your system. So I see our driving laws as a real barrier um, because a lot of patients probably need the THC in their prescription um, and, you know, they may be reticent to take it because they're worried about driving. Um, some doctors may even be reticent about um prescribing it for the same sort of reasons. So I do see that problematic. I think countries like Canada do it better than us. Canada um, legalised um, recreational use a couple of years ago, and it's only an offence if someone is, is demonstrated to be impaired when they're driving. Um, so it's only an offence that way. So I think we can learn a lot from from Canada uh, on that. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, I was just thinking as well, I, you know, you're enormous contributions in both, um, you know, the academic uh, history, but also with um, regulatory reform. Um, I'm sure your own clinical practice, but with all of that, when people come to you and say, you know, I'm interested in learning about medicinal cannabis, um, this type of online platform that you're launching, which sounds very exciting, is obviously a space for doctors to do their CPD. Hmm. But for the average punter, where might they Uh, get resources or where might you direct them to learn more about medicinal cannabis and plant-based medicines?
1: Yeah, that's, I guess, problematic in some respects because um, there's not a lot of good education around for the public, I'd have to say. Um, Mm -hmm. Often the TGA will say they've got things on the website. I'm not sure that's entirely what people are, are, are wanting in the form that they can actually understand. That's my own personal opinion. Um, We are focused on healthcare practitioner education, but we will be branching out more into public education too. The International College of Cannabinoid uh, Medicine Limited is a Canadian company. So so I I guess it is problematic because we have guidelines in Australia, um, which are advertising guidelines for companies involved in the medicinal cannabis business, and they're fairly strict in terms of um, um not promoting an mm. unapproved good which is the medicinal cannabis so mm. it does make it a little bit problematic to make sure that you're not stepping over the wrong side of the line mm. um, in terms of of um education
0: mm. well it's, it's true and you have to with everything that you might want to say about the product if it could be construed as promoting the use of that unapproved therapeutic good, then you have to almost give a a bit of a disclaimer to say, you know, notwithstanding that information um, other (laughs) um, practitioners um, would, might argue that uh, there is very limited uh, clinical trial research that proves efficacy of these substances. Um, Actually on that point, um, you would have seen uh, various people. I think one of the heads of, uh, the ANZ uh, College of Anaesthetists um, came out recently and, and sort of, I guess, provided that view from the other side of the fence to say, look, I, I don't um, recommend that, um, that anyone who practices in the field of pain medicine prescribe these products because we just don't have enough information. Um, do you come across that from time to time or do you have a view on that? I don't want to yeah, sort of cause any controversy <laughs> here.
1: Yeah, no, I don't want to get into a fight with anyone over the, over the world. <laughs> um, but, look, I think everyone has got their own opinion on what is evidence in medicine, um, and there's different forms of evidence. So you've got randomised controlled trials, which are, you know, the gold standard of, of uh, evidence in medicine. Um, you've got then systematic reviews, which basically pull that data together, and, um, and then you've got other forms of evidence, which are case studies and case control studies, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I've seen those arguments in many different places about there's not enough evidence for this, there's not enough evidence for that. All I can do is go to the, um, I guess, the literature, which I do, um, and I look at the systematic reviews and say, well, what are most of these systematic reviews saying? Are Mm -hmm. they saying that there's adequate evidence or not? Um, And I think in many cases there are. So the National Academies of Sciences Engineering Medicine put out a, a report in 2017, it's a, it's a book basically, and that used only randomised controlled trial evidence and systematic review evidence to come up with the, um, I guess, what is the state of, of evidence uh, for different clinical conditions. And they stated in theirs that there was conclusive or substantial evidence for cannabinoids or cannabis in the treatment of chronic pain spasticity associated with ms and chemo-induced nausea and vomiting and moderate amount of evidence uh, for sleep disorders associated with a number of conditions and for the rest of them they had less evidence now that's back in 2017 Mm. you know that that sort of showed straight away all right Well, look you know they're only using systematic control uh systematic reviews and randomized controlled trial data and yet they've still come up and said that there's substantial or conclusive evidence for you know three conditions and moderate for another um epilepsy is another area where there's growing body of evidence uh for efficacy so again it it's uh, it depends on how much you read i suppose and um the um the research is just uh coming out you know every month so yeah. it's it's something you've got to kind of keep up with. So yeah. I think that some people might put out a, an opinion, but they might perhaps change that opinion six months down the track when more evidence co- becomes available. And so it really does come down to an argument on what you believe is adequate evidence and what you think is inadequate.
2: Yeah. And I think now we're starting to see, you know, with uh, c- 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 um, Epidiolex, actual you know, medicine's being registered, that it's not just some kind of snake oil. The, the other thing that I find really hard to, um, to ignore is when you, you consider how difficult it is to access medicinal cannabis generally, how expensive it is on a monthly basis and the initial consult and the level of demand that we're seeing from people for even CBD products, which are not you know, traditionally recreational products um, that people might use THC for it's hard to ignore the it's hard to imagine that that's all placebo uh, you know that you somebody saying it's not effective and you've just got this overwhelming demand of people you know trying to access and it costing them an arm and a leg and really going out of their way so does that count for anything I mean in your eyes?
1: I mean experiential evidence is you know I mean herbal medicine really developed on the basis of experiential evidence, didn't it, when you're looking back at ancient cultures of, you know, Chinese medicine, Indian um, traditional medicine, those sorts of things. So I don't discount people's own um, personal experiences with it as a form of evidence.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's just not yeah. going to be that gold standard in, in, in uh, medical, you know, research um, evidence, that's all. Of course,
2: of course.
1: But I think there's a growing bank of that kind of evidence. There's also a growing bank of experience of doctors um, in their own clinical practice who are finding, you know, results. Um, sometimes they might find it doesn't work for different things. So as I said, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's safety issues that need to be considered as well, you know. Um,
0: yeah, I, I suppose, even I'm just thinking back to that that news article, but in that field of pain medicine, you would from time to time mm-hmm. see people who are, in excruciating amounts of pain, you know, real, really, in a, in a very difficult spot, and perhaps more suitable for, you know, really heavy duty opioids, even though that comes with its own corollary problems as well um, that have been widely recorded in the the opioid. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's it, you're right. It does it's, it's field dependent, isn't it? Yeah,
1: and you know, I mean, I guess the TGA make it sort of clear that medicinal cannabis is not a first line. You know that other things need to have been tried first, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they take a conservative approach, which you'd expect. Yeah. Um, and you know, to, to be fair, on their website and the TGA website, they do have um, some good summaries of the, um, you know, the evidence uh, for, for certain conditions. So, you know, people can go to that and and read it um, as well. You know, they can get that sort of you know, some of the data from the TGA website because they have. Um, you know, done a reasonable job in pulling some of that evidence together. But I guess the caveat always is that research and evidence is changing all the time and it's hard to keep up with it.
0: It's, um, I'm just curious about this uh, this proposal to remove, say, CBD. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Mitch and I have a, a, a strong interest in a range of other minor cannabinoids and would like mm-hmm. to see all those which are non-psychoactive, um, yeah. you know, potentially removed. But... If that were to occur and they were to be um, classified as complementary medicines, Mm. it would remove that, any requirement that the person have a first-line therapy before trying a complementary medicine. So they would be able to to have this. um, Is that right? And and are there other complementary? I mean, if
2: it's
1: it's just like any other, you know, off-the-shelf complementary medicine, then, yes, it would remove that. But while it uh, remains under... As an unapproved, Gordon remains on the schedule. As I said, it's treated like a drug. So, um, Mm. you know,
0: it it does have a very low, uh, you know, sort of safety risk profile. Those non psychoactive cannabinoids. So I am interested in: Are there any complementary medicines currently available which have any sort of concerns with safety risk or anything?
1: Look, I think any herbal medicine um, has a potential, you know, there's, there's herbs that do interact with drugs. And we know that cannabidiol can interact with certain drugs, certainly theoretically, but, mm. um, but also not just theoretically in that, there, you know, there's been a number of studies in the epilepsy uh, field, for example, where they've shown that cannabidiol will interact with um, particular drugs um, so I think that's well documented. Um, but with any um, herbal medicine, there are a number of different herbs that can interact with different drugs, and these are well known. I mean, there's a very good um, drug herb supplement database um, called IM Gateway, um, which when I was practising China's medicine I used to look up all the time because it actually... Um, it was a good resource if a patient came in and they were taking certain Western medications and you could check whether it interacted with any of the, the herbs mm. or supplements that they might, um, you know, be taking as well. Mm. So, um, you know, it, it's it, many different herbs potentially can interact with, mm. with other, um, and drugs in, interact with drugs too, for goodness sake, you know. <laughs> so um, well,
2: My dad isn't even allowed to eat grapefruit um because of what it can do to his heart medicine so it's yeah uh, yeah
1: yeah. so some foods interact you're right absolutely
2: yeah yeah yeah. so that's yeah but but from my understanding you wanting to remove it from the susmp entirely would mean it would not be scheduled even as a s3 or complementary medicine uh, sorry S three pharmacy only
1: medicine that's right Yeah. yeah yeah so i mean that doesn't necessarily mean people are going to race out and suddenly start to self-medicate i mean a lot of people go and see other healthcare practitioners like naturopaths herbalists things Mm -hmm. like that um so you know it would be treated as i said in my mind just as any other herbal medicine that you can you know and you'd have to have appropriate warning labels and things like that um i think that's just sensible
2: yeah. So then what's what's your thoughts on you know other parts of the world where it is not even regulated in in the slightest in that it's basically a food product in the eu yeah look, yeah
1: um, yeah i mean obviously it makes it probably brings the prices down an awful lot and i think that's part of the problem in australia is so that our prices are fairly high for these medicines simply because of um you know a lot of the costs involved in in a regulatory system I think what we do well in Australia, I'll come back to this, is that we do regulate quality of complementary medicines and medicines very Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that it's really important to have good quality control of any forms of of complementary medicines, Mm -hmm. um, plant medicine, vitamins, supplements, those sorts of things. So in other countries, I really can't speak with any great expertise on that because I don't know the regulatory systems so well. Um, but I do think that um, you've always got to look at what's the quality of anything that you're putting onto the market, and I think that's what Australia does really well. We've got a reputation in the world um, to do that very well.
2: But do you think, um, I mean, you could say the same for for, for the food safety and food standards in Australia. Yeah. When you you look at powdered milk, for example, things like that. Um, Do you think that there is space for a medical and a non-medical CBD kind of movement if you will
1: yeah i'm, I'm not sure about a non-medical because I, I guess i see it, see it as a therapeutic um thing if you like um mm-hmm. so yeah i'm not sure whether i've got any great comments on that mitchell
0: fair
2: enough fair enough just
0: for so you're going <laughs> to spring mitch the question you ask a lot of our guests on AltMed, which is getting them to pick what
2: year a yeah. might legalize recreational cannabis um, we, we, we have this hypothetical game we play at the end of okay. uh, some of the, uh, the podcasts and we like okay. to ask, you know, you, you see, I mean, you see it even in New Zealand across the pond, they put it out there a few months ago, you know, thinking about recreational. Um, do you think that is ever a potential on the horizon in Australia? And if so, when would you imagine the timeline to be?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. um, <laughs> I think they, um have at least decriminalised it, haven't they, in terms of recreational use? So that's a start. Um, I think we've got a fairly conservative government at the moment. I'd love to have a, a referendum here to see what we, you know, what, what the rest of the country really thought about it. My guess is going to be somewhere between five and 10 years. I'd love to see it sooner because I actually think that criminalising drugs doesn't work as a public health measure. I think that the countries that have decriminalised have actually, you know, sort of shown better outcomes for people. So I'd love to see it sooner than that, but I'm not that hopeful. I think that perhaps five to 10 years I'm going to put my money on that.
2: That's, yeah. I, I, I tend to sit in the same kind of bandwidth, actually, five to ten. I, I, uh, I appreciate that. I, and I agree with the, the decriminalisation piece as well. It's more of a, I guess, you know, I, I don't see any reason why um, cannabis should be any more dangerous than alcohol, for example. Um, no,
1: I, d- I don't think it is, to yeah. be honest. I think alcohol is probably um, more problematic. That's
0: yeah, my absolutely. um Well, we'll watch with bated breath and see when uh, when this happens. But I, I tend to agree a more progressive government um, might need to take the reins given the, the interaction of the Commonwealth Narcotics Act and, and these types of um, uh, bits of legislation. But if you've got no further questions, Mitch, I was going to just say thank you so much to, to Kylie for, for joining us for an episode. And we'll be watching all of your interactions with the TGA with with intrigue and interest and we'll um you know when they finally listen to you and remove <laughs> CBD from the SUSNP we will uh, get you on for a sort of celebratory episode but um i <laughs>
1: will be more than happy to celebrate that.
2: Yeah. yeah that'd be fantastic.
0: All right well thank you so much. We'll um we will speak again soon and and take care. All
1: right. Thanks guys. Pleasure.